On Friday, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz became the first democratic leader to visit Beijing and meet President Xi Jinping since he tightened his grip on power at the 20th Communist Party Congress. ASPI analyst Dario Impionbato speaks to the president of the European Union Chamber of Commerce in China, Jörg Wotka, about the significance of the highly contested visit and what it means for the future of foreign business in China and China-Europe relations. You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPI podcast with me, Olivia Nelson. I am joined today by Jörg Wotka, President of the EU Chamber of Commerce in China. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So German Chancellor Olaf Scholz visited Beijing on Friday last week. He became the first representative of a liberal democracy to be granted a state visit to China since 2019, prior to the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak. He was also the first major political leader to meet Xi Jinping, since he consolidated power at the 20th Party Congress in October. This has attracted no little attention and controversy, generating tensions with other European and US leaders. Jörg, what is your assessment of Scholz's visit to Beijing? Well, let me first say that actually in February this year, we had the Grand Duce of Luxembourg and the President of Poland here. So we had two European heads of states already coming over. Of course, Scholz is a different political heavyweight. It's a a G7 leader after all. And I really must say that it was great timing. It was uh, basically meeting Xi Jinping after he has established his new Politburo. He has taken this opportunity to meet the president before they gather again, I think end of next week in Bali. And it was very crucial to do it now because you're very worried about the nuclear threat that comes out of Moscow. And we needed uh, Xi Jinping's understanding before he goes into Bali and meets uh, Putin there again. I think it was vital. That was, I guess, not a business as usual visit. It was clearly focused on security. It was clearly focused on human rights and others. And you could see it already, the size of the delegation. It was just 12 CEOs. uh, And uh, it was a 12-hour visit only. And so I think the the fact that Xi Jinping mentioned that nuclear weapons uh, should not be used in the 21st century was already an indicator that maybe he is uh, getting away from Russia to that extent and it might be helpful for us. And then, of course, uh, for us experts here, the fact that uh, China agreed to have biotech mRNA uh, was quite a uh, success. It it will be administered. We have access to this uh, Uh, German vaccine. Uh, And again, none of that, none of the commitments from uh, Xi on Ukraine as well as uh, BioNTech would have happened if Scholz would have stayed in Berlin. Interesting. So you think a lot of the negative commentary was a bit blown up. And do you think that being accompanied by a coalition of business leaders was a good move? Well, it was necessary to show commitment, but again, there were no contract signings, there was uh, no big show. Actually, the business leaders uh, were not with the Chancellor at the meeting with Xi Jinping, they just met the Prime Minister. And in a way, it was indicating again uh, that we uh, have an interest in the Chinese economy, but clearly the issue of reciprocity came up, in particular in view of the Hamburg Harbour that he just uh, days before he left uh, Berlin for Beijing agreed that Costco can buy a minority share there. 
reciprocity is important in that respect as, for example, China has already now 14 stakes in European harbors, so this is going to be number 15. Uh, but again, we have quite a number of European companies equally having a stake in Chinese harbors. But the difference is that Chinese ship can now go, uh, could already go before from Europe within from port to port, whereas we cannot do the same here. So if you have a European shipping agency, they have to go from Dalian to Korea to come to Shanghai, whereas uh, the Chinese Costco can easily go from Greece to Hamburg to Antwerp and so forth. So again, I think the discussion in my home country were a bit ill-conceived because I, I really don't see the problem in the equity part. I see if what comes out of that in business opportunities uh, that was actually should have been the right discussion. And again, uh, if you can always be a nice armchair warrior looking from afar and saying this is not the right time to come. When is the right time? Is it going to be after 10 weeks, 10 months, five years, wait for the next Politburo? This is unlikely. You have to take China as it is. You cannot wish it away and believe that it's going to be next visit is going to be liberal. It's not going to be. We are entering a new period over here and it's just good to face reality. So just a follow-up question to that, and more broadly about Germany's engagement with, with China. The coalition agreement that allowed Schultz to become chancellor in Germany promised a much tougher approach to China. How do you think that Schultz's recent decisions that we have mentioned so far align with that coalition agreement? And how does his approach compare with his predecessors, Angela Merkel's? Well, it's too early to tell. Again, uh, you know, it, it's not a business as usual. In the old days, it was more getting market access, is sort of uh, making sure that the right kind of Chinese companies invest in Germany. But this time, it was all about Ukraine, I guess, uh, because uh, we have uh, problems at our border. Uh, Russia is fiddling around with a nuclear trigger. And of course, it's very important in order to actually address the Taiwan issue. Uh, which it was, uh, supply chain, the importance of semiconductors, uh, believe it or not, but the largest foreign investor in Taiwan is the European Union with 45 billion US dollars as a stock. So, uh, yeah, it, I guess it fits into it. Of course, visually and given the populist uh, uh, atmosphere against China, um, it was a tough call in order to still make that trip. But as a leader, uh, you have to see the broader sense of things. And uh, for once, uh, he really did uh, quite well, I must say. So definitely prioritizing engagement, which I also see as a, as a positive thing. What is, in your view, a sensible approach to China, not just for governments, but also for businesses in the current climate? Well, they have lined up a new um, Politburo, uh, and it's very clear to me that it's all yes-sayers, it's all people that are very close to the president, former chief of staffs. So it's not going to be just the third term. It could well be the fourth, the fifth, or the sixth, as uh, your former prime minister, Kevin Rudd, uh, pointed out. Uh, he could well be uh, into office for six terms, meaning at uh, uh, 2037, when he's going to be 85 years old, so in the best age to run for U.S. presidency, uh, he might still be around. And we just have to assume that he will be around. So you have to engage. So I can only say that the more European or also OECD leaders, Western leaders are visiting China, the better, because I'm really concerned about this echo chamber being established here, uh, that uh, you only have people presenting to him what he might want to hear. And it's uh, foreign leaders that have not only the possibility, but I guess also the, the duties in order to actually raise difficult topics 
to make him at least hear it. I don't know if he then does policy out of that, but we are in a very complicated period of time. The more engagement, the better. Um, and of course, uh, also in issues such as climate change, uh, which uh, starts in uh, Egypt uh, today. So just more of that eco chamber that, that you mentioned, I think uh, there is also sort of very contrasting predictions around zero COVID policies in China. Some people who are currently in China seem to be a little bit more hopeful that the government will ease some of these policies, but then, you know, outside of China, what a lot of analysts are perceiving from what the the party is publishing is that actually Xi Jinping is going to double down on zero COVID. What is what is your assessment on that? And, you know, I know that you have also um, directly lobbied senior officials like outgoing Premier Li Keqiang on the impact that zero COVID was having on the economy. What was their response to you? Well, their response was positive. I guess, again, the State Council has a closer view on what it does to the economy, whereas uh, uh, the party and the president have something to sell. They have a success story to sell. Two years of zero tolerance have basically led to an exemplary success. Few people died. The business was booming. But again, zero tolerance stands for I buy time to do something. And that's the part they missed out, the vaccination. So now you all enjoy life, whereas we are going here from lockdown to lockdown. I just came out of a five-day lockdown in, uh, in on Wednesday. Uh, my secretary had three days in lockdown a, a month ago. My assistant, seven days uh, a week ago. And my driver just was locked down this morning. So it, it is like a, like a whack-a-mole, really. I mean, where is it going to hit you next? Uh, and that's, that's going to drag down the economy. But again, the success story of the president is zero tolerance. He declared victory last year and it's very hard to declare victory again, if you have already declared it last year. Um, and now we have the situation where possibly 100 million plus are in, in the situation. So within China, of course, people take the slightest hint, positive, and say, oh my God, the nightmare is over, we're going to have a normal life again. I think that's wishful thinking. I guess uh, that uh, if China opens up, it has to have a very strong communication campaign, meaning it has to come out and say, uh, we have to vaccinate. Uh, it is going to be tough. It's going to last six to nine months. Until then, we cannot open the border. We still have to test. Um, and uh, we have at the same time a situation where people then might contract Omicron. It's not evil. It's not the plague. But some people might die and then explain who is dying, meaning the unvaccinated. Uh, and then after nine months, uh, maybe after summer next year, we can sort of have a bit of a normal life over here. Until then, it's wishful thinking. Everything depends on vaccination. Vaccination, three uh, shots, the booster shot, better with the mix that I was propagating to Prime Minister Li Keqiang. And then on top of it, of course, it has to be those 60 and above uh, that have to be vaccinated. And they can sell it nicely. Again, the data in the U.S., generates everything. People, A lot of people died. Life expectancy went down because people that were not vaccinated died. We have the same in Europe, where in Bulgaria and Slovakia, we have lower uh, life expectancy because people die unvaccinated. Whereas in Denmark, in Germany, in Sweden, actually life expectancy is the same and virtually nobody dies anymore because there's a vaccination. So unless the government here comes out with a strong communication campaign, also indicating the Politburo members 
all above 60, by the way, so ideal for a showcase, uh, getting the jab until this happened, everything else is wishful thinking. So you think they can still pull it off, sort of paint it as still a victory for China, even though they would move away from the current policies? I think they will sh showcase lives. We care for lives. Uh, but in the meantime, destroy livelihood. Uh, so I guess, uh, again, our recommendation is start vaccination, start the campaign, protect the doctors, by the way, it's another issue in, in this country. If a doctor vaccinates someone who's uh, elderly or has problems and this person dies, the doctor is toast, really is. In our societies, uh, the doctors are legally protected. So there's a lot of homework to do before you can consider actually opening up the country and go back to normal. Until then, uh, you need testing, you need, uh, you need all the precautions. And we talk about six to nine months if they start this afternoon. So more broadly, what do you think is the direction China is more likely to take uh, in sort of the more medium to long term, both in economic and, and geopolitical terms? Well, the, the Congress uh, showed it very clearly where we're heading. Uh, many people have forgotten we are talking about the Communist Party of China. And Xi Jinping is a Communist Party leader. Uh, many people thought that we are dealing here with uh, a Leninist party structure, but with Manchester capitalism. It's not the case. We talk about Marx. He talked about Marx 15 times in his speech, Marx three times. So as all the reformers are basically on their way out in March next year, uh, we can expect there will be less opening up. Uh, we can expect there will be more focus on self-reliance. The antagonism with the U.S. is not going to get better. It drives China's way of thinking. We have to be independent from Western countries. Uh, there is a strong self-confidence that actually this can be done, which might lead down the wrong way. So in a way, what we have to expect is simply more socialism here. Um, again, uh, the kind of wealth distribution, common prosperity, uh, is, is very, very important to consider. Uh, that has mightily depressed my friends, my neighbors, my business partners, the private entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, that actually uh, going to be the group that possibly is get hit the most. Uh, it's also interesting to see, I guess, less than 1% or 2% of all the delegates in the Communist Party Congress were private entrepreneurs. For us in foreign business, I think it's not as dire because we are here in areas where China cannot close the gap. So I guess in most cases we stay here, in particular in, in manufacturing. Uh, Xi Jinping clearly has emphasized, emphasized the importance of the real economy. So if you're a service sector, you might actually be more challenged. But in manufacturing, particularly in car chemicals and machinery, possibly more of the same. So hence, understandable, though those companies pour more money into the economy. But for private Chinese entrepreneurs, the, the, the sentiment erosion is notable. So it is feeling really dire there at the moment. Is it true a lot of people are trying to leave the country? Well, it depends on what you see many people. I mean, it's 1.4 billion, you can imagine. But uh, I guess that um, uh, those people are considering to leave that speak foreign languages, that have foreign connections, that have the money, and that have prospects uh, to get a good job and to be entrepreneurial outside. So this might be couple of handfuls uh, of entrepreneurs in particular, or maybe scientists. But these are crucial people. These are the uh, catalysts for Chinese development. Those were those people that brought China to where it is today. Um, so maybe you talk about a couple of millions only, but these are absolutely crucial. So in a way, I hope that these people 
can be convinced by the leadership to stay and and uh, to do their thing that the common prosperity gets a little bit better explained that it's not sort of a reach for your pockets and uh, stop driving a mercedes-benz uh, for us in foreign business these guys are really vital they are a sustainable supply side story uh, great uh, and demanding customers and of course unfortunately but good for us in many ways also extremely competitive companies running against us where we can learn a lot in a way china has been an incredible entrepreneurial fitness club for us because of these people and this is exactly the elite that gets challenged by the new policy so we have to see how it shapes up that would be really interesting to watch in the in the coming years for sure uh, going back to europe and particularly the european union where do you see the eu stance and uh, positioning on china heading towards Well, it went from uh, favorable, uh, I think, uh, 10-15 years ago, virtually all the countries looked at China in favorable terms, 70-80% plus, to negative, very negative uh, these days. Uh, and uh, it's now in, in my country, 78-80% negative, and Sweden even above. Um, uh, there are still some countries where it's balanced. Uh, Greece is 50-50. But uh, I think the uh, Ukraine war has really eroded China's standing a lot. This fence-setting Uh, really doesn't go down well with our population. So let's hope that uh, Chancellor could get that message across last uh, Friday. Where are we heading? I actually don't know because uh, China also has uh, threatened uh, Taiwan. Uh, I think uh, about a year ago, hardly anybody in Europe could have pinpointed on the map where Taiwan is located. Now I guess everybody knows where Taiwan is. It becomes a political thing. Uh, I'm always very much in favor of deeper economic relationships uh, with uh, the Taiwanese economy. At the same time, I always tell the parliaments where I do hearing in Brussels or Berlin that there is a red line. And we have to be more pronounced about uh, that Taiwanese independence will lead to war. Uh, so we have to be a little bit more clear about what China's red lines are. Again, a topic I hope where Scholz took away something last Friday listening to Xi Jinping. I hope it was a dialogue and not just two monologues. So in a way, where's Europe heading? I don't know. There, there is a more clairvoyant approach towards China. Uh, for years, I was lobbying that China uh, is viewed also as a state or enterprise economy. I was uh, lobbying for investment screening, meaning clearly uh, advocating that European uh, countries embrace Chinese private entrepreneurs, that, for example, CATL or, or others um, uh, that uh, invest in, in Hungary, for example, now. But that we really have to look on SOE engagement there because that's state funds, that's subsidies. But again, we have we have moved on quite a bit over the last six years. So there's a new uh, coercion uh, law coming up uh, in view of uh, Lithuania. That's very important. Uh, we have a new um, instrument, the International Procurement Instrument, um, that looks into other countries' public procurement. Uh, where we are very often losing against Chinese SOEs. Uh, and it's good that we have maybe a law that uh, reminds those countries they have a bilateral treatment uh, for uh, with the European Union, so that our companies in third market should be treated fair and square in view of Chinese competition. And then, of course, we have the supply chain law. I mean, we have to get better in business here in explaining why we're here and to prepare operations. It's our license to operate, to make sure there's no forced labor anywhere in our supply chains and the law is going to remind us there. So in a way we get better in preparing our toolbox, but at the same time, 
we should not go down the road of decoupling. Uh, we should look into de-risking about diversification in some segments, but otherwise uh, just welcome Chinese as a business partner. Thank you so much for the very comprehensive views you just expressed. Uh, I'll just catch the ball since you mentioned the EU anti-coercion instrument here at ASPE. We have a team that is closely looking at um, economic and gray zone coercion by the Chinese Communist Party. And we have been definitely watching how the anti-coercion instrument plays out uh, in Europe. So thank you for mentioning that as well. Amazing. Thanks so much again for joining us today. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.